Are we on? Yes, we are. All right, folks, it is that time. This is your 23rd of October edition of Sunday School. Come on in, take your seats, bring in your coffee, your Bibles, your loved ones, and anything else you value, not necessarily in that order, and we'll go ahead and get started. Again, if, I just ask if you can sit on the right side of the auditorium, make it easier so that I can have just one, since we're no longer meeting in the classrooms in the annex, this makes it look at least a little more like you're all together. And again, I remind you, these seats up here are fine. See, Bob is brave enough to go. Oh, no, he's going around. These have been disinfected. The crime tape has been removed. They're perfectly usable, but... I realize that there's a holiness inverse factor here. The further away from the pastor, the holier you are. I think that's how that works. But we're going to go ahead and get started here, folks. So gather around and uh, let's go ahead and uh, open with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you again for another magnificent and glorious day, Uh, not because of the weather, but because we are yours, because you have given us everything that we need, especially you've given us what we most prize, which is Jesus himself. We thank you, Father, for the new life that we have in him, and we pray that as we continue studying doctrine, as we find it in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, may it not be simply cold, uh, inert words, but things that help us point, uh, point us to you, to your word, so that we can better understand who you are and what you have done for us so graciously in Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, we're continuing our look at our Shorter Catechism. And uh, last week we did the Trinity in 45 minutes. You are now experts. But really, I do want to reiterate again the beauty about catechisms and confessions. People sit there and say, well, these things can be limiting. Uh, I believe in the Bible, and the Bible alone is my only creed. Well, of course, uh, with all due respect, that's nonsense. The Bible alone is our authority. That absolutely is true. Not popes, not tradition, not, you know, uh, pastors. But to sit there and say that your only creed is the Bible doesn't work, because the minute that I ask you who is Jesus, and you give me an answer, you've done theology. You've put a confession out. You've put a a creed out, as it were. If you tell me Jesus is fully God and fully man, two natures and one person. I know this is coming later in the catechism, but I'm kind of giving you a little little, uh, uh, preview of that, right? If you tell me that, I'll say, then you've done theology. Write that down so you can pass it on to the next generation or to your friends. That's what we have going on here. The Shorter Catechism is simply an aid. It's a tool that summarizes key doctrines that we find in Scripture, helps us to understand what it is the Scripture teaches about who God is, what He's doing for us in Christ, and how we are then to respond in a way that is in keeping with the will of God. So uh, this is what the Catechism does for us, and it just continues to draw us deeper in. Uh, You remember we looked at the Catechism and it laid out for us the very initial First three questions are huge worldview questions. And then it got into saying, okay, what does the Bible principally teach? And it tells us that principally teaches what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And the rest of the catechism splits along those two things. So we're now in that first part telling us what we are to believe concerning God. And so we've looked at his nature. We looked at his Trinitarian nature last week. And today 
Uh, we're going to jump into question number seven, and we're going to deal with that very important issue. Again, uh, you can find that in your Trinity hymnal, uh, roughly, what do we say about page 860? 870. 870, so not 860, 870. So you'll find it around there, and uh, if not, you may also have it on your on your phone or any other kind of thing that you might have. But before we, we read that, and I probably shouldn't have told you to do that just yet because everybody's attention is now on the page, but let me just tell you a story. It was about 30 years ago in our church. We lived in Colorado, and there was a tragic accident for young teenagers. Um, I guess that's superfluous, young teenagers, but four teenagers were driving uh, alone in a car up in the mountains and lost control of the car and plummeted over a cliff, and they were all tragically killed. And the pastor of those kids, or at least one of them, had um, you know, a big worship service. And during that worship service, he got up there and he said, God had nothing, I should say a funeral service, sorry. But during that funeral service, he, uh, which is a worship service, um, he made the, the statement that God had nothing to do with the death of these children. Evil like this. God had nothing to do with it. And um, uh, that made the papers. It was still a small enough town that, you know, that kind of thing was a big deal. And our pastor, who had been preaching through the book of Revelation that, uh, that year and, and the previous year and the year before that, but he had been preaching through Revelation, paused what he was doing and just on the fly preached that Sunday because everybody had known of the, uh, the tragic accident. Everybody also had known of what the pastor had said. And he said, no, God had everything to do with the death of these children. And if we don't believe that, there is no salvation. Wow, that's a pretty big leap to make. Uh, that's pretty crazy. But it's absolutely true. If any of you have ever heard of the Maverick Molecule by uh, R.C. Sproul, you know that if there's anything outside of the control of God, then there really can be no salvation and no guarantee of salvation. So that's what we're going to be dealing with here. Um, let's try our old practice that we uh, kind of gave up in the last week or so. But let's go back to where I'm going to ask you guys to look up certain passages now. And if you will grab your Bibles and just put a finger in one of these passages um, and then hold that until I ask you to read. And then we're going to jump in and uh, deal with this topic. But let's see, can I get somebody who will read, uh, and again, just hold it for now, Ephesians 1, 11. Ephesians, got Matt, okay, good. Let's also see if we can get somebody to do uh, Romans eleven thirty six. We're gonna do a lot of passages this, this time. Daniel, gotcha. Romans eleven thirty six. Daniel. Okay, Isaiah 46, 10. Isaiah 46, 10. I'm gonna get Jacob over here. Um. Job 14.5, okay, and if you can do that, 14.5, Proverbs 16.4, Tanya, you've got that. That should get us through the initial flurry, and then we'll probably do that again. But let's jump in while you're looking up those passages. Let's jump in first and deal with the catechism question and answer. Will somebody read question 7? And the answer for question seven. Scott? What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever. All right. This is one of the uh, just key, key um, 
summaries of Scripture right here, one that causes consternation for some Christians. I hope that what we can do is kind of look at this and begin to see uh, the truth of what's being said here. God decrees things, and it says here those decrees are his eternal purpose, according not to what others want, but according to the counsel of his will, whereby for what end? For his own glory, he has foreordained some things, no, foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now, is the catechism question going too far? What does Scripture say about this matter? So let's just dive right in. Rather than trying to defend us from the beginning just by saying, oh, this is good doctrine, let's dive into the Scripture. Who's got Ephesians 1.11? Okay, if you'll read that, Matt. Uh-huh, he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. So he works a few things, some things. He works all things. You can see the catechism question is almost, almost completely lifted from this verse. He works all things according to what? The counsel of his own will. No one is coming alongside and telling God this is what's best. God defines what is best, right? So all the different things that we see happening in the world, none of them are accidental. None of them are simply things that happen by chance. Uh, They don't just work out because they work out. No, there's ultimately a reason for every last thing that happens. For good things, for things that we would call bad things, every one of those has a reason, and that reason is rooted in the great plan that God has. Now, notice I did not say is rooted in God, but in the great plan of God, and I'll explain that in a little bit. But let's go ahead and uh, take a look at another passage. Who's got Romans eleven thirty six? If you'll read that. Okay, so God foreordains all things, and in the end, everything points to him. Everything leads to him. Everything is ultimately from him. Everything is for him. Everything is for his glory. So even as he ordains all things, you know, you sometimes hear people say that what God most wants is for us to be saved. That's not true at all. What does God most want? His own glory. Now, we'll explore that a little bit, because what's the first objection that comes to mind when you hear that? Okay, everybody's asleep today. Say again. Sounds self-centered, right. We we need to explore that. We need to deal with it. So start thinking in your mind, what's the answer for that, the biblical answer? But there's no doubt that everything tends to God, from Romans 11, 36. He is the the funnel to which everything funnels towards him. So it is all for his glory. Okay, let's take a look also. Uh, Isaiah 46.10. Who's got that one? Okay, 
Okay, thank you. I probably should have asked maybe for the previous verse, but it's saying that this is the God who declares everything from the beginning to the end. Everything is within the scope of his decree. And uh, as it says here, my counsel shall stand. So not only does he declare it, but it simply is going to be, right? Okay, one other, uh, no, two more. Uh, Job 14.5, okay. All right, so his days are determined, the number of his months are with you, and you have appointed his bounds, the boundaries that he cannot pass. Even our lives, every moment of our lives are determined. And not only that, it says the bounds. By bounds, it doesn't mean, okay, you can't jump off of planet Earth. It's talking about the limits of your life, the things that you do, and all that are bounded by God. He sets those boundaries. Wait a minute, what about? Free will. Yes, free will, thank you. And uh, every, every, you know, that my little chart, I have a chart at home, you know, and I get the names, and you, you're going to get that star today, Matt. And uh, <laughs> Matt's great. All right, and um, uh, yes, we're going to deal with that issue as well. What about free will? Does understanding that God, in ordaining whatsoever comes to pass, including every aspect of our lives, does that mean that we have no free will? And again, some folks, in order to defend free will, will then push down a little bit on God's eternal decree. Others, in order to lift up God's eternal decree, will push down man's free will, and it's really unnecessary to do either of those. All right, one last one. Proverbs 16.4. Ah, now we're stepping onto even more troublesome ground. He's made everything according to his purpose, even, even. Now, does it say that he makes evil? He makes those who are evil or who will do evil. Interesting uh, and very necessary qualification that, again, we're going to get into. So I've bombarded you with a bunch of texts just so that we can go back to our question and answer. And let's listen to that answer again and see if now, you know what, this might actually be a pretty good summary of all the things we've just read. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. So that's the teaching. Um, G.I. Williamson, in his little commentary on the Shorter Catechism, likens this, and he says it's just a parallel with lots of limitations, but he likes it, likens it to when uh, we sit down and we make a plan, like for building a house. So we decide that we want to build a house, and we've got some architectural and some engineering skills, so we sit there in our drafting board or computer nowadays, and there with our various uh, uh, instruments, we plan out the blueprints and we come up with this, this plan that's comprehensive for the building of our house. It includes all the different aspects of what needs to go into the house. It includes all the different materials. And then we go on and we make a plan for the actual construction of it. 
and we have lay out all the different manners in which um, the foundation and the walls and the electrical wiring and all the different components will be put in. And so we make a plan. And there is an analogy here to the way God orders all different things. He has a plan that includes not only what the end result will look like, but how we're going to get there, all the different components that are going to be involved, all the different players. I guess it's an 80s term, a 90s term. Is that still around? People still, still talk about who are the players? Um, okay, so I don't feel that old. Um, so, you know, all those different aspects are in God's plan, including the actual process of the accomplishing of that plan and who are going to be the folks. I mean, he actually even lays out who's going to be hired to build the house and to do the construction work and so on and so on. Every last part is laid out. Now, there are, of course, some distinct, uh, some uh, differences uh, between the way we plan for things and the way that God plans for things. For one, God's plan is eternal. Let's, let's focus on what that means. When you and I decided to build this dream house of ours, we had several things that um, limited us. First of all, there was a time in which we didn't even know that we wanted or needed to build that house, right? There was a time in which it wasn't even in our mindset. So often when you plan for something, it's to deal with a problem or an issue. There was a time before that issue even existed or that problem existed. You did not even know that you had to address it. Then it comes time for you to become aware of it, and you have a growing awareness of what it is that you have to deal with. And then you make a decision that you're going to deal with whatever the issue or the problem is. Okay, I need shelter, uh, and I'm going to build this house. Then you go through the process of gathering all that, and you grow in your knowledge, and you apply your skills, and so on and so on. So all these are different aspects of how we do planning, but that's not at all what God has to deal with. For God, there isn't any time where he had to uh, not deal with what he had decreed. It has always been the case that he's planned to do these things. Now you might say, well, isn't there a time when God did not plan these things? Isn't there a time before when God decided to do those things? And in asking that question, we immediately realize that we can't even begin to answer it. Because from the very moment of creation, God had already had all these things laid out. And you say, well, okay, well, then even before then, he had to decide. There is no before then. Okay, just prepare to kind of grasp it. Creation includes the creation of time, which is how we, in our limited, finite creatureliness, we need to be able to track things in an orderly way, one thing follows the other, cause and effect, and so on. Time itself is an invention. There was no time before time for God to, before, have come up with that. So within the context of anything that could be comprehended by humanity, God's plan is eternal. It has always been what he has chosen to do. It is something that he didn't have to figure out. He didn't have to wrestle with it uh, before he arrived at a suitable plan. It has always been the case. So, for example, Psalm 33, 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the thoughts of his heart, to all generations. So, God is a God who already had that plan. He does not have to plan from day to day. You know, many of you got taught or perhaps um, uh, just figured it out on your own that, you know, you 
sit down every day and you plan out what you're going to do or you plan out for the next day how things are going to go. God doesn't have to do that. It has always been his plan. And that plan never falters, never changes. As we said about his character, he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And that means that his purpose and his plan also is unchangeable. It's always been part of God's mind, right? Um, the other thing that is worth saying when we talk about it being eternal is that God did not have to consult with anybody. This plan is his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will. Now see, every single time that you make a plan, you consult with somebody. You might say, oh no, not me. At least sometimes I do, but no, I chose this morning to drink orange juice. I did not consult with anyone. I did not have to go to my wife and ask her for permission to get orange juice or whatever. But the fact is you did consult because you now know what orange juice is because somebody taught you at some point. At some point, outside information had to be given to you for you to know what is a good thing to eat and and drink and breakfast or not. You see the point I'm getting at? We, as I said, when we make plans, we gather information. Sometimes we don't do that because we've already learned it, but at some time we had to gain that information. God doesn't need to do that. He doesn't need to investigate the parameters of the problem or the issue. In fact, he defines those. And when he decides to do things, he does not need to check with somebody and ask what is best because God, by his very nature, defines what is good defines what is best. Is that all making sense? We're all tracking? All right, let's... Uh... Oh, I guess we can read this. Uh, Romans eleven thirty three verse 34. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Just uh, um, another passage, again, pointing out the fact that what he does is, is glorious, is perfect, beyond our comprehension and its fullness. And like I said, who is his counselor? Who's the one who told him you could have done it better? Because that's really what a counselor is for, right? Somebody who tells you, here's what's best, corrects you. God doesn't need that. Okay, the other thing, of course, that is different between our plan and the plan of God is that his plan is absolute, absolute. In other words, there's no possibility. It it, it encompasses every last thing. It is comprehensive uh, in, in every detail. There's nothing that happens that does not fall into the plan of God. And, and, and again, um, I mentioned it earlier. If you've ever listened to any of the uh, various lectures by R.C. Sproul, uh, or perhaps read one of his books that describes, he has this thing called the maverick molecule. He says, can you have even one molecule in the whole of the universe that's outside of God's control. Could such a thing be possible? And if so, then what are the consequences? And he goes on to explain why it's not, but he uses that old adage, how does it go uh, for want of a horse? I'm sorry, for want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of the rider, the battle was lost. For want of the battle, the war was lost for want of the war. The kingdom was lost, all because one little nail fell out of uh, that horse's horseshoe. Those things do happen, little consequences. 
build up. And if one thing caused this, which caused that, which caused that, then God would not have the ultimate control. And who knows if he could ever have pulled off his plan of salvation. The one thing that you see very clearly in the Old Testament, and we've already read some of those passages, is he's saying, I'm going to do it. And it just is. One of the beautiful things that you see is that's encompassed in God's very name. What is God's name? I am. Yahweh. I am. And there's this, you know, this is like a 60s thing. Like, it's just so, you guys watch Kelly's Heroes? No? You guys know the movie, Kelly's Heroes? Okay, have you ever watched that movie? Clint Eastwood? Okay, Clint Eastwood's in it and a whole bunch of other, Don Rickles just tears it up in that movie. What? Who's Don Rickles? Oh, please. You've got to go watch it. So in Kelly's Heroes, Donald Sutherland, uh, you guys know who Donald Sutherland is? Father of Kiefer Sutherland, who's already old now, but Donald Sutherland um, is in that movie, and he's playing sort of, um, it's World War II, set in World War II, but he's a 1960s person in World War II. Yeah, just go with it. And, you know, he's always saying, oh, it's with the negative vibes, Moriarty. Oh, it's with the negative vibes. But he's like really cool and relaxed and all this other stuff. And, and, and you can just see that, you know, you can just see, the, the, I always see Sutherland's character sitting there and saying, oh, wow. When you think of something like, I am that I am. That name basically says, I just, I just exist. I, I, I don't need anything. There's nothing around me. That I don't, nothing impinges upon me. You know, and, and it's just, that is even in, as we study these things, you can just see that very, thing. you can just, uh, yeah. So anyway, you can have a Donald Sutherland moment as you, contemplate what that means but it does mean that everything is included within the realm of God's plan it's completely comprehensive and nothing is outside of God's control so that brings up things like chance when we talk about games of chance or things that happen by chance why don't you help me understand how can we talk about chance and at the same time say God's plan is absolute and covers every last thing so there are no maverick molecules are these irreconcilable? What do we mean when we talk about chance? Jonathan? Unknown to us. Unknown to us. So it's, it's a matter of perspective then. Okay. So, yeah, if you flip a coin, is it right to say that there's a 50-50 chance of it being head or tails? Yeah, that, that's a factual statement. It is okay to say uh, 50-50 uh, chance. And it is okay to talk about probabilities and those sorts of things. You know, you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, uh, you've got a, a 10% chance that it might be this terrible disease. You've got a 40% chance of a, whatever. Those things have consequences. What are they doing? They're looking at all the prior cases, and they're building up a picture based on the likelihood of what we've seen in the past. Are those things wrong? Are they unchristian, anti-Christian to even use the, the kind of language? No, it's not. So if you study statistics in school and probability, you know, you're not going to hell. You're okay. <laughs> but what we have to understand is that that is defined from an anthro, anthropocentric, that means a man-centered position. It's how we view things. Our creaturely finitude, in other words, the fact that we are finite, we are limited, not just because of sin. Sin certainly puts a limitation on things. But we were, even in the garden, before the fall, we were finite. We were limited. We don't know everything. We cannot comprehend everything. As we've said before, God's knowledge, even of those things that we do know, is not even the same as our knowledge of those same things. 
In other words, it's not simply that God knows more. That's the common, you know, as I talk to folks in the evangelical world, their view is that, you know, God's knowledge is this infinite block of knowledge. Of course, by its very definition, we can't show, you know, infinity here, can't contain it. But let's just assume that's all knowledge. And so, you know, we know little pieces of that puzzle. God knows the whole right? But we know these little pieces that I'm coloring in. And the mistaken understanding is that, yes, as a finite creature, I do not know everything that God knows, but what I do know, I know it precisely as God knows, but that's not true. Because of his vastly, uh, because he's unbound by by, uh, by our limitations, even the things that we do know, and there are things that we know that God knows. For example, we know, despite common core, that two plus two equals four. We really do know this and have known it for centuries, okay? Uh, it's only when we started saying that certain genes, you know, can be ignored and you can be a woman or you can be a man, depending just, you know, what all those kind of things that have been in the last 25, 30 years, which are nuts. But there are things I know, two plus two equals four. But my, I, my knowledge is not identical to that of God's. And we've given you the analogy, and it is an analogy. Uh, again, do you know, you can look at this pack of uh, this little uh, transmitter pack. You can see it. You have knowledge of what the front looks like, right? So it says Sennheiser in the front, and it's got uh, some other things on there. It's got a little red light. So you see that, right? Now I flip it. And you see there's a little place for the cord and a place to put it on my belt. And I'm choosing not to do that today because it's an over the, over the belt kind of thing. So you already know that's there. You can see it. What's on the other side? What does it say on the other side? Sennheiser. Sennheiser. Is there a little red light? Yeah. Okay, you know this because you're capable. You're not, you know, uh, a brute animal. But you don't actually see it. Now you see it, but you don't see the back. Every bit of our knowledge is always limited to some aspect. The fact that even if you memorized every last bit of it, you can never see the whole of it at one shot. Just that one simple example. God can, quote unquote, God can see this item from all sides at once. So his experience of this is different than yours. His knowledge of it is different. Just, and it's just an analogy. But it goes to show that your knowledge is still true knowledge. You really did know there was a little red light in front. So that's colored in. God knows it too. But he knows it in a way that you and I will never know it. So we have to bring that into the equation as well. Um, Okay, our time is slipping away. So we need to deal with some things. When we're talking about chance, that's really what we're saying. God can see all the different permutations and possibilities. And it's not simply, correct me on this, is it? that God knows all the possibilities and is able to then tell you which one of those is going to work out? Number 68, red. Anybody know what I was doing there? Okay. Uh, no, we don't have time. <laughs> okay, I've got to tell you. We were, the church I interned in, you know, churches get a lot of donated stuff. And uh, we had a library, really, it's a larger church, about 600 people. And it had a library, and there were these little tables, you know, that you could go and bring your life. This is back when nothing was on computers, so you still had to get a little card, and you can sign your name 
to sign something out. And so it was this little table that was there meant for um, people to use and whatever. And it was just, just a funny-looking little table made of wood and all that. Turns out, now, they, this is a church that had um, come from a background that was um, very much against things like drinking and gambling and all that and that kind of thing. If you actually looked inside, it was a game table. And when you opened it, inside it had a little felt cover and it had a roulette table, roulette table and a uh, uh, thing for poker. And so it, it, I always thought it was just humorous that some, there were some folks in that church that were very, very vociferous about uh, they had come out of the Bible Presbyterian Church. Uh, the Bible Presbyterian Church is a very tiny little denomination that um, is essentially, was a breakoff actually from the OPC in 1937, uh, essentially holds to a lot of those uh, things that you find in some other churches that, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't, you know, you can't drink, you can't do that. And certainly it would have blown their minds, this one elder who always was going on, would have blown his mind to know that all the time because he was always in the library. He was on top of a roulette table. He just didn't even know it. I'm sorry. It has nothing to do with anything. But God doesn't just know that the little ball is going to land on red 68. What's the correct, what, what's go on for me? If it's, he doesn't just know all the different permutations and say, I foresee that. Aha. He's decided it. So, what do I want to look at here? Proverbs sixteen thirty three: The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole dis- disposing thereof is of the Lord. So even, you know, they would cast lots. Okay, you get the short end of the stick. You're the guy who has to go, you know, clean the stables or whatever the case may be, right? God doesn't just sit there and say, oh, I know that that one's going to be because I know how it's going to fall. And you hear people saying, that, yeah, God's just a really good chess player. He's just so smart that he can outwit you even as you exercise your free will. That's how this works. No, no, no. God actually ordains that the ball won't land there. He'll ordain that this is the person who gets the short end of the straw, you know, the short stick and that kind of stuff. He actually chooses it. Um, we don't have time here, but if you were to read, it's perfect for you guys to do this afternoon when you go home, Second Kings 22. Second Kings 22. There you have King Ahab who chooses to go into battle. He disguises himself. And he takes a chance, even though God tells him, do not go into the battle. If you will, you will die. So Ahab's like, yeah, whatever, prophets. They're always, always up against me, always trying. I've got to win this battle. But, you know, maybe he's got something, okay, you know, you can't completely dismiss Yahweh. So he gets himself all, you know, dressed up to look like a, a lowly commoner. And what happens? We read in verse 34, the Syrian soldier shoots an arrow into the air. He's not aiming at any particular target. And what's the, what does the arrow do? It hits King Ahab and kills him. <gasps> what? Yes, even the things that looked like they were by chance. Okay, what about free will? I, I need to start moving more quickly here. Um, have you ever made a decision that you did not want to? No. We've talked about this before, so I won't get too much into it. But every decision that you have ever made, you have wanted it to make, Right? No, not really. My mom said I had to clean my room. I didn't want to clean my room. Yes, you did. Given the choices that were before you, because you are finite and you do not control everything. So when your mom says clean the room or no ice cream and no Xbox or whatever today, you know, they say, no Xbox, 
you were given those choices and you wanted to clean your room more than you wanted to not lose your Xbox, you see? So true freedom of the will, true free will is making a choice given the limitations that are and the, and the, and the conditions that are presented before me. What God does is he works out all these different conditions. That's the first thing he does. He puts the conditions in front of you so that your choices are limited. That's part of being finite, right? You're not free, for example, to leap off a cliff and just fly. You have not been given the ability to do that. God did not create you. He created the conditions that would lead to a pretty bad end if you jumped off you know, a cliff and decided that you were just going to soar like an eagle. Okay, Sans technology, I'm assuming. Okay, there's something else that God does. God determines your character, your nature. It starts with the fact that you're a human and not a tree and not, you know, uh, uh, a dog. You have certain characteristics. You've heard me talk about this before. The dog and the cat, they have certain characteristics. My dog chases after cars. Cats do not chase after cars. They chase after canaries, right? The dog wants to bury a bone. The cat has no interest in and that kind of thing, he wants to chase after mice, that kind of sort of stuff. If you change their nature, you turn the cat into a dog, the things it wants to do changes. You're a human being, you have desires. And we're not even getting into now how those desires are shaped by sin and so on, we can do that later. But you have desires, you have things that are according to your human nature, and then on top of that, you're a particular individual, and you might like chocolate more than you like vanilla and all those different things, but God made you and he conditions you in those directions. So God sets all those conditions, the external conditions that you face for every choice that you make. You chose to drink that orange juice today. What if it was not there in your refrigerator? Oh, but I chose for it to be there because I went and I bought it myself. Well, it was only there because a grocer put it there, and it was only there because a farmer grew it, you know, in a, ran- in, in a grove or somewhere in California or Florida. You, you get the point. You do not have absolute control even of those choices. So God works those conditions external to you. He also works who you are, and he gives you your desires, your inclinations, and your wants so that you still always choose according to your greatest desire in that moment, but it still has been shaped by God. Does that make sense? There's the explanation of free will and God's sovereignty in two minutes. Thank you. And we will deal with that a a little more. No, seriously, um, this is probably the biggest place that people struggle because the tendency is to diminish one over the other. If I'm going to protect God's sovereignty, I have to say there's no free will. If I have to protect free will, I'm going to have to uh, uh, shave off a little bit from the sovereignty of God. And reality is we don't need to do those things. Uh, just a few more passages to, uh, to put your way. Mm, let's skip that. Okay, I'm gonna skip some of these things. So Acts 2.23, um, talking about Jesus and those who killed him, uh, Peter says that Jesus being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. So we all know this was uh, freely done. Um, Judas freely chose to betray him. The Romans freely chose to execute him. Pontius Pilate freely chose, you know, all the different things that they chose. 
And yet it's very clear here, he was delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. Uh, and, and, and he goes on in that same verse to say that you have taken uh, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain him. So you did it, and yet at the same time, God determined it. So this is just one of those things for us to uh, figure out. Um, again, they're not as contradictory as you might think. Or as there's Ephesians 2.10. I know we just um, read a little bit in Ephesians. Uh, we are his workmanship, created in, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. The whole purpose of our salvation in that regard is for us to be good, to do what we could not do in the garden. We're being saved back to that state where we can finally do those things. God has foreordained. He just doesn't, didn't just foreordain, hey, be good tonight, hope you do some good things. He actually has those good works foreordained for you. And yet you will freely choose to do them. All right, let's throw out a few things. There's more we could do here. Um, oh, 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 yes, Acts thirteen forty eight. Um, I choose Jesus. Did I choose Jesus? Do Calvinists believe that people choose? They say yes, absolutely. Uh, there's a thing called hyper-Calvinism, which sometimes is ignorantly attributed to all Reformed people. Uh, Hyper-Calvinists, thankfully, are... Um, pretty rare. Um, I was going to say maybe as rare as Baptists who drink, but I'm discovering living here in the South, and, or Texas anyway, there's a lot more of those that might want to admit. Um, so that's not the best example, but there aren't that many hyper-Calvinists anymore, but there are a few of them out there. So a hyper-Calvinist will go out and say something like, God determines who's going to be saved, so I need not to do anything. And uh, there actually is a tiny little denomination I don't know, it's got like seven churches in it or something. Uh, so it's, I don't know if it's a denomination or just a bunch of guys who, you know, get on the Internet and talk to one another. But uh, basically they kind of hold to that, that view that there's no such thing as the free offer of the gospel because we can only give the gospel to the elect. And I think Spurgeon had something to say about that. Everybody remember what Spurgeon said about knowing the elect or not knowing them? Yeah, he was saying, if, if the elect have like, had like a yellow stripe on their back, he said, I'd go around lifting up shirt tails. Okay, he's okay. But since we don't, the free offer of the gospel goes out. And the free offer of the gospel is absolutely genuine. All who come to Christ will be saved. Is there anything misleading about that? It can be offered to everyone. Everyone in the room. If Whoever comes to Christ will be saved. Now, that doesn't in any way do any violence to the idea that God is the one who determines who will have the ability, according to their nature, to choose. Now we're getting into the good and evil and, and what does sin do to our ability to choose. We'll deal with that when we study um, us a little bit more in detail. But he chooses whom he's going to regenerate, and that regenerate person is then able to respond to the gospel. And if that person then responds to the gospel, he will be received. That's all absolutely true. So the free offer of the gospel is absolutely clear. But God is in control of all those different issues. So we get a, a passage like in Acts thirteen forty eight when Paul's preaching at Lystra, and then we read that as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. They believed, and yet at the same time they were ordained. So God's plan is absolute. One last thing we're going to say here, and that is that... Um, it tells us that he does all these things for his glory. 
and we said that we wanted to deal a little bit with what that means. Um, when we say it's for his glory, what we're really saying is that it does not go beyond God. There is no ulterior purpose beyond God. You know, we talk about I do something, but I don't do it for selfish reasons. I do it for the greater good. There's something beyond us that we think is greater and bigger that deserves our attention or justifies this action. What God is saying is, there is nothing beyond me. There is no greater good. There is nothing beyond to which to appeal. And that helps us to deal with the question of when we say, well, for his own glory, doesn't that seem kind of selfish? It does when you're talking about humans. Why? Because, first of all, we don't deserve that level of attention. Certainly as sinful people, we don't. But even before the fall, we don't deserve that. So when you see somebody who's making much of himself, the reason we think that that person is being self-centered or selfish or conceited or arrogant or whatever term we want to use is because we sit there and say, that's not really according to that person's nature. Right? He's making more of himself than he really is. That's what we're really saying. Is God making more of himself than he really is when he says, it's for my glory? No. Because he really is all that. He really is the, uh, yeah, I know. I didn't mean anything by it, but we could have said all that in a bag of chips and all that. But he, he really is the end all of all things. Nothing goes beyond him. Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things and for your pleasure they exist and were created. So you see, there's nothing that, be, that goes beyond. Uh, everything that God has planned has been for his good pleasure. And that's something that God has to do because it would be a denial of his very nature, right? If you go around acting uh, uh, haughty, you are denying your very nature, who you are. Um, if God were to say, no, no, let's give the attention elsewhere, it would be a denial of his own nature, his perfections. Does that make sense? That just lets me address one thing about worship. Uh, and C.S. Lewis has talked about this. I didn't bring the quote today. I maybe I should have. But C.S. Lewis talks about this thing that God is that greatest need, that greatest good that we're searching for. And of course, you know, the Augustine quote that says, my heart is restless, O God, until it finds its rest in thee, in you, O God. This idea that he's what we need. And so C.S. Lewis brings up this thing that what is worship? It's praise. And what is praise? It's, it's fulfilling our need. So essentially, God is not being selfish when he says, worship me. He's actually serving you by giving you what you most need. The fact that we were created for him and we are only satisfied and we only find contentment and satisfaction in God, ideally, especially in Christ as Christ reveals God to us. And we can have no fruition of God apart from Christ. So I'll just simply say, True contentment and satisfaction is found only in Christ. So until your attention is there, you're literally miserable, and you spend the whole of your life chasing, right? That's what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is doing. Ecclesiastes says, oh, you're putting your trust in that? And it just keeps knocking out every prop out from under us. Everything on which we rest, in the end, every one of them leaves us wanting. Every one of them leaves us uh, uh, unsatisfied. And so what God does, he says, what you really need, and 
what fulfills you as a, as a human being is me. So I will give you me as an act of love because he is the end of all things and all things are to him and for him and so on. So it's not a selfish thing. If God were to sit there and say, yeah, oh, oh shucks, you know, let's look beyond at somebody else or something else, then that would be God. Don't you see? So he is being true to his own nature. He's not being selfish. All right, let's start wrapping this up. Um, well, I guess we probably should then deal very briefly with sin. Um, we'll deal a little bit more with this when we actually deal with sin entering into the world. But um, Scripture tells us that God is, uh, James tells us that God is not the author of sin. I'll simply say this then. While he ordains all things, we've already kind of covered this ground, because he, we also choose freely, we freely choose to sin, to do evil. Some people sit there and say, well, how can you do that? And so on, it had to come from somewhere. Uh, so there is some mystery here um, that God clearly foreordained the fall, just like he foreordained the car accident of this, you know, the tragic you know, thing that happened some 30 years ago now. Uh, those are all things that God ordains. God was not at the wheel. He did not literally turn the wheel and make the car go off the cliff. He does not make Adam choose the one fruit that he told him to stay away from. Every time that you sin, that is your free choice. God can ordain all the different things, the external conditions, and even your nature and your makeup so that you end up making that free choice. But the responsibility is yours. So that's really just a, to speak in terms of logic, philosophy or whatever, that's really a subspecies of what we were dealing with earlier. As you, de- as you deal with free will, you can also deal with the issue of, of sin. And because James says that God is not the author of sin, then that's our starting point for answering that question. Um, Yeah, so I'll leave it there. Um, uh, Jude, for example, Jude verse 4, tells us that some men were before of old ordained to this condemnation, that is, to what's coming uh, for, for sin. First uh, Thessalonians 5, 9 says that God has not appointed us to wrath, but in order to obtain salvation. So it's very clear that there are these two different paths that he ordains the final end of people. But again, uh, I just wanted to throw those out there. But again, we are responsible for our choices. So I'm gonna leave it there for now. Uh, Let's turn to questions that you might have or comments that you wanna make. Uh, It's a pretty comprehensive um, catechism question. So again, we're we're limited by our time. Uh, You can obviously explore these things for a whole semester or much more. But again, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And as you look at every one of those elements, hopefully we've at least touched upon them scripturally enough to see that there is solid foundation for each and every one of those uh, parts of the catechism question. All right, any questions, comments, things to wrap up with? Yes, sir. Answer doesn't really answer the question that was asked. I, 
think it better answers the question, what is the nature of God's decrees, but it doesn't list the decrees. Yeah, and it never will. Um, interestingly enough, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things of God only are of God's, but the things that are revealed are for man to understand. So there are things that are revealed in Scripture, and you can't understand them. When people sit there and say, oh, there's no way you can know it. No, it's right there. You can. And it's revealed so that we do understand it. Maybe perhaps with some study, perhaps with some help. But there are some things that God will keep to himself. I sometimes hear people say, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll know that when we die. When we go in glory, we'll know all things. No, you won't. For the very simple fact that we're limited. We will never know everything. God is infinite. We will have all eternity to just study God himself. The decrees are of that species of kind of thing. Uh, God does not choose to reveal to us his decrees. Sometimes he does, and he tells us certain things. I'm going to send uh, this prophet, and this is going to happen, and it's going to happen, and a little more detail. I'm gonna, the Messiah is coming, and I'm going to save, and I'm going to do that. Uh, Jesus will return. That's very, very clear. But what's going to happen? Is Iran going to develop a nuclear bomb? It's a real issue. My dog is sick. Literally, today, you know, he couldn't move again, and he's just stuck. What's going to happen? Is, is we're going to have him? Is he going to make it till Christmas or two more years? Those, to me, are all open-ended questions. They're not to God. He's already predetermined those. He has not revealed those decrees. So you're absolutely right. The actual content of the decrees are not, um, uh, not revealed to us except for those things which are in Scripture. What this is dealing with, you're right, is the nature of what, those dec- of what God's decree is like. Um, and it's an important point because we do see certain things that are taught in Scripture, and many evangelical Christians will say, well, God has worked out those things, but the wor- rest is kind of like open-ended. And if you think that sounds crazy, right now there's a whole school in evangelical churches. If it had been liberal churches, I'd sit there and say, yeah, whatever, you know. They don't even know what sex people are or whatever. But they're going to go ahead and deal with this in the evangelical church? That's messed up. It's called open theism. Open theism. Remember that term. So if you hear anybody claiming to be open theist, you can just sit there and say, thank you. I'm going to go find another church, another seminary. No, for real. Open theism basically says that God's just going along with you. And the future is open-ended, and he's just faster, smarter, wiser than you, so he will play the chessboard better than you can play it, and so he'll hopefully accomplish all his purposes. But that has now started uh, in the mid-'80s, and I thought it got pretty much, by 2000, had been pretty well answered. And yet, since 2000, you've noticed that evangelical churches, for the most part, have given up on any kind of intellectual thing. There's no more thinking. It's all, let's get more people, let's fight cultural battles, it's important that you have people in your churches. It's important that we stand up to society and to culture and, and speak the word of God to them uh, and so on and call out things like the sexual immorality that's rampant in our culture and, and other things. But we've given up on really knowing the word. There's a huge level of biblical illiteracy that exists. When we talk about theology, we're ultimately talking about biblical illiteracy. If it's good theology, it's rooted in what Scripture says and explains what Scripture says. And um, open theism is all of a sudden back in major academic circles, which means that, uh, in evangelical circles, which means that within 10 years, it'll be in pulpits if it's not already there. There's already a few. Rob Bell, does that ring a bell? So, anyway, that's maybe not where you were going with that, but you're right. It does not actually tell you the decrees. Uh, There's one place that you find it, Revelation 4, the book, who is worthy to open the scrolls 
What are the scrolls? The scrolls are the eternal decrees of God. The comfort for us is that Jesus is the only one worthy to take the scroll. We have a person, we're talking about, we have a high priest who understands our weaknesses. We have a man who sits on the throne of heaven. It's a man. He is God. But he's a man who knows everything that, he knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to have his friends stab him in the back. Literally, he knows all these different things. He knows what you go through, and he's sitting on the throne, and he alone is the one who is unfolding history. And he's unfolding it in perfect accord with God's decrees. That should bring you great comfort. So when you do get that terrible diagnosis from the doctor, when you do find out that something horrible has happened, you know, in your, in your marriage or in your home or, you know, all those sorts of different things, that does not mean those things are not wrong or bad or evil. They are. But the great comfort of knowing that even, you know, what happens, okay, Hurricane Irma or Ivan or Ian or, you know, whatever came through or a tornado and destroyed every last one of my possessions. Can you say, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, Blessed be the name of the Lord, because that same Lord sits on the throne of heaven, unfolding that scroll in perfect accord with his eternal decree. That brings us comfort. Okay, uh, we're 1010, we're past our time. If you have other questions, uh, just find me afterwards, and uh, we'll be happy to talk. Next week, we'll take up our next question. Things just keep getting better and better. Okay, let's go ahead and close with prayer. Father in heaven, how thankful we are that you are the God who is ultimate in all things, and that includes that you have foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And this gives us great comfort to know that Jesus, the King of heaven, God in the flesh, who understands our every hurt, our every want, our every need, is unfolding history in perfect accord to your eternal decree so that whatever happens, we know is always for our good, and for your glory. May we, Father, uh, as we go to worship now, have that in our hearts and in our minds so that we might worship you aright. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.